some lessons for the church in the age of shutdown and reopening, and how should Christians approach voting. This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 10. Welcome. I hope that you are doing well today. It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to diving into a couple of topics. But first, if you have any uh, ideas for the podcast or questions you'd like me to discuss, please send them in. I love to hear from you and hear your ideas. The number for the podcast is 315-566-0056. Yes, that's 315-566-0056. Shoot that in. It comes into my email labeled for the podcast. Excellent. Well, today, I want to begin by, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. Life is always changing, and this is true for all of us. Because of these facts, I want to be constantly learning and and ready to change in ways that are helpful. When it comes to church, local church, the message doesn't change, but the methods do. The, the core of who we are and what we do is rooted in the unchanging reality of who Jesus is. But communication and, and styles and methods, those are always subject to change. Uh, for example, new Bible translations capturing current English, English usage. Uh, the, the point is not to change what the Bible says. Occasionally that happens and that is uh, just horrific. Um, But the point is not to change what the Bible says, it's to more accurately or rightly convey what the Bible does say to people living today. Uh, For example, uh, a very famous and long-used translation of the Bible was authorized by King James back in the early 17th century, I think 1611, yes, and it's a famous and it's a pretty pretty solid Bible translation overall. The problem is the English spoken in the early 17th century is remarkably different from English spoken today, even though it was almost used as a a grammar for for many years. Uh, For example, a a couple of passages that would be very confusing uh, in the King James. In fact, not only not only would it be hard to understand, there are, there are passages that are hard to understand. At times, the King James translation, we might almost understand it backwards. For example, here's a verse in Matthew 26, 66. The King James goes like this. Let me look it up real quick. Uh, what think ye? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Now, this is when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. They say he is guilty of death. If someone's guilty of death, I would tend to hear that as they're guilty of murder, the death of someone, they've killed somebody. But in fact, here's the New King James translation. And what we see is it's it's not saying he is guilty of murder, but he is deserving death. Matthew 26, 66 in the New King James Version. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Again, it's literally the King James, he is guilty of death, would lead me to think the opposite of what it's actually saying. Uh, One is saying he deserves death. The other one says he has murdered someone. Now, somebody who murders somebody deserves death. Like You can easily see how these two things happen, but just the phrasing is so foreign to the way uh, I would speak today and most people. 
Another verse that's just tricky because it uses an archaic word that none of us know. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is speaking and, and he's making a point and he gives a little parable and he says, doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. I trow not. I would tend to think trow not, I know not. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I know not. Turns out, I know not is the wrong translation. Uh, I trow not means I think not. I don't think that's true. I believe not. Um, And so what we see in the New King James translation, talking about this master with a servant who did what was commanded him, Jesus says, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Okay, I think the point's made. And the point is this. Uh, we don't change the Bible, but we do trans- change translations as life moves forward because languages change. People are, are different. We want to say, how do we communicate effectively? What's the best way to, to boldly lay hold of unchanging truths about who God is and who he's created us to be uh, and communicate those things in a way that makes sense and and connects with the people in our world today, both believers and non-believers. So we have things like Bible translations change. We also have things like styles and methods of even gathering and doing local church that changes. And, And one thing I've been asking a lot and I've had conversations with several people about in the past few months is what lessons are we learning in this season that we're going to bring with us into the next season? I don't want to just go through several months and be like, wow, that was hard and strange and not learn anything. Uh, what, what can we be learning in this season? Yeah, it's hard. It's strange. But what are we learning? What, what are we going to change in, in, in what we value or what we do that's going to last not just in this season, but what we're going to bring with us into the next season? And I think one thing we learn in a season like this is just life is precious and life is short It's a reminder that none of us is promised tomorrow, so let's live for Jesus today. Every time, whether it's the the death of a loved one or unrest across the globe or pandemics, when things like this happen, I think a lesson that we should learn again and again is just a simple reminder of the lesson that life is precious and life is short. Secondly, something I'm I'm definitely uh, learning in this season is just wow, I'm really thankful for technology. Uh, I I love computers. I went to school for computer science. I enjoy tech. Uh, I I don't think I'd particularly leaned into and leveraged technology uh, to the extent that it could be leaned into and leveraged until this past season. I know at the, uh, the, the location that I pastor, CFC Canton, we... Certainly we use tech for things. I mean, at some level, you can think of almost everything we use in the modern world as technology, whether it's electricity or uh, indoor plumbing, you know, I mean, things like this. But I'm talking with computers and the internet, things like that. We hadn't been streaming, but this past season caused us to, uh, you know, lean into setting up computers and and software stacks to, to stream. And not just to stream, but to try to say, like, how do we get decently loud audio streaming and what platforms can we use and uh, changing our light up setting, our lighting setting a little bit. Uh, And uh, we're not making professional TV productions, 
But I do think we've we've leaned into and we've improved the way we stream. I'm really thankful for the hard work of several individuals in the church, uh, and I'm thankful just for this technology. And it's something that not only is helping us in this season, uh, where people are, you know, some of us are gathering together again, but but some whether it's because there's not childcare or just because there might be some sp- specific issues with uh, being careful about the virus, etc. We're not all together in technology. I'm really thankful for that, and that's certainly something that we're going to bring beyond this season. We've grown in the way that we leverage technology, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, third is an insight into government and the church. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been to illegal gatherings of Christians before. It was in communist China. And I, I guess I tend to think, and I think most of us have, that government shutting down church gatherings uh, would generally be associated with an explicit anti-Christian persecution of sorts. And it's just, it's, it's an interesting insight to realize, hmm, it could come a little bit more uh, cloaked, a little bit more subtly. And certainly there's nothing wrong if we have a, a group of believers as local church government decide, hey, we're, we're going to, we're, we're not going to gather for several weeks or even several months because of some situation. Certainly we're free to do that. It's not like sinful not to gather every Sunday, but there is a very clear call to be gathering and, and worshiping and stirring one another. And that's a decision for Christians to make. You know, in, in China, if if a group of Christians decides like they're not able to meet for a few weeks, they're free to. But it's also inappropriate for the government of China to say, you're not allowed to meet. And they do say that, and the Christians meet anyways. And like I said, I've been to illegal gatherings of Christians in China. Uh, I think I've, I've, I've just kind of gleaned an insight into how gatherings of Christians could become illegal in the future. And I think I'm more prepared than ever to be at illegal gatherings of Christians in the United States. Um, I don't think we're generally quite at that point at the moment where we're allowed to gather, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But if at some point the, the government bars gathering, but we as local believers feel like it's this is still uh, healthy and appropriate for us to do as we worship Jesus, we're already across that bridge when we get there. Um, another thought just a renewed valuing of gathering in person. In case it didn't wasn't obvious, I, I, none of these lessons learned are like entirely novel, but it's largely like, yeah, I knew gathering in person was good. Wow, it's really important. I mean, it just the, the biblical word for for church is ecclesia, and it means a public gathering, a, a gathering together of people from their homes to, to meet with one another, to stir one another, to worship the Lord, to to hear the public declaration of the word, to sing songs of worship and praise, to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And I've valued that for years, and I've known that for years. Wow, there's like a renewed valuing, though, of gathering together in person. Uh, I, I think some people in this season are certainly thankful for technology and the ability to stream, but they're almost learning the wrong lesson. They're like, oh, we don't need to gather. And I'm like, no, I'm thankful for the technology and streaming, and it's a useful tool that I want to lean into. But wow, I I feel like when appropriate, let's double down on face-to-face gathering. Uh, Another lesson is just a new appreciation for the value of seeing faces. Um, 
one of the things I studied in college as a double major towards the end, and one was communications. And definitely one of the things that they hammer home real early on is the majority of human communication is nonverbal. And so I've known this for a while, but but man, weeks and now months of seeing people in public contexts, like at Walmart or in a restaurant, and largely not seeing their mouths, much of their face, it just... Uh, again, a renewed or, or even a deeper appreciation for the value of seeing faces. These are, it's significant. So I, I don't think there's one right way to do local church from a structure, ministry, emphasis standpoint. Um, but I think some of these lessons are lean into being flexible, dynamic, uh, definitely lean into, into technology but also, when appropriate, doubling down on the face-to-face. Uh, these are kind of some of the things I'm learning as a local church leader, and I'd love to hear from you guys. Do you have any observations just in the past few months, some some lessons for the church to learn, to carry forward from this season, some things we're being reminded of or being brought deeper in in this season that we can learn and carry with us into the future? This is definitely not the end of the conversation, more like the beginning. Okay, uh, a question came in that I found super interesting. So thank you for sharing. Here's the question. Hi, Jamie. I've really enjoyed your podcast. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. In light of the presidential election, I wonder if you could tackle the pros and cons of voting third party and the idea of voting for the lesser of two evils. This is an awesome question and definitely one I've thought about a little bit. Uh, So some some thoughts on voting generally. Uh, how should Christians approach voting? Um, though not a perfect analogy, we find some, some wisdom in, in the Old Testament for, uh, for identifying a king and some wisdom for a king. Um, a couple passages, one in Deuteronomy 17 and the other one in Proverbs 31. And I just want to look at a, a few verses from each of these. So Proverbs 17, verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it. And I will say, excuse me, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king, the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. And when he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes." Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or the left. And he and his sons will continue reigning for many years in Israel. Now, some of the specific admonitions here are are pretty much utterly uh, inapplicable to to the, you know, any sort of political office today, including president. We don't have kings. Uh, We're not a, we're not like... America is not the the nation of God or something like that, but but it leans into some ideas about humility and character and th- things like that that are just some thoughts to 
to carry us. We consider the notion of voting and, and who responsible leaders are. Here's some wisdom in Proverbs 31, the first several verses. Wisdom from for a king from his mother. She says, uh, this is Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, a pronouncement that his mother taught him. What should I say, my son? What, son of my womb? What, son of my vows? Don't spend your energy on women or your efforts on those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise, he will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all the oppressed. Give beer to the one who is dying, and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. So some wisdom for a son, and uh, and in this case, obviously, the person's going to be king. By the way, I, I think there's a, a strong parallel not simply to people who hold political office in the United States today, uh, but I would say even a stronger parallel for every born-again believer. We are kings and priests. We represent the Lord. We are called to do justice, to to pursue the peace of our cities. Uh, It is important that we don't pervert justice for the oppressed, that we don't forget God's will. And, and so don't ca- get caught up. And in verses three and, three and four, she warns him about not spending your energy on women and not getting drunk with wine and beer in a way where you would forget what is decreed. And really, we see these, there are temptations, and there are temptations in this day to chase after uh, power and material possessions and, uh, you know, fame and uh, sex and, and substances and, and things things like that, we, we can so easily could get caught up in those cycles and lose sight of what God has for us and what he's calling us to do. And, uh, and, and so there's a reminder at the end, speak up, judge righteously, uh, speak up for those who have no voice, for, all, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. And so we see just some basic wisdom. Again, I, I fully realize, and this is important to realize, our political representatives are not kings. Not even the president is a king. Um, but but there's some wisdom here, talking about humility, talking about character, talking about um, having our wits about us so that we can do good. And uh, these are important principles that I think we can bring at some level to our own lives and to the political process in the United States. Um, voting, we have a unique position as citizens of America. The president isn't king. The Constitution is, and and it invites or even demands insofar as it utterly fails when the citizenry abandons participation, it demands our involvement. And, And so you could even think of it this way. Each one of us, citizens of the United States, we have a share uh, in, in the sovereignty of this nation. Um, it's almost like we are co-kings, you might think of it as. Here's a quotation from Alexander Hamilton, um, a statesman around the founding of America. A share in the sovereignty of the state, which is exercised by the citizens at large, in voting at elections is one of the most important rights of the subject, and in a republic ought to stand foremost in the estimation of the law. 
Like he saw this as a super significant, and, and again, as, as almost us exercising a share in the sovereignty of the state. Thomas Jefferson said, the rational and peaceable instrument of reform is the suffrage of the people. And suffrage meaning the, the voting of the people. So how should we vote? If, if, if we're in a state where we have a share in its sovereignty, we're at some level, we're called to act like kings, uh, co-kings. We are not king, but we have a responsibility to, like, what are we called to pursue? How, how do we use our vote? In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it talks about pursuing the well-being of the city we are in. Um, pray to the Lord that, that it thrives, because when it thrives, you will thrive. And by the way, I was just paraphrasing. Uh, look up that passage in Jeremiah 29. It's, it's brilliant. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, quoting here, Learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We ought to use the fact that we are co-sovereigns, that we, have, uh, we are called to a position of exercising some power and influence in our political process. We ought to do that to pursue the well-being of our state, to, to pursue justice, to, to do what is good, to correct the oppressor, to defend the fatherless. And so uh, I'm, I'm not saying that it's immoral not to vote. Um, I think there could be, especially if someone is maybe even struggling with an idolatry of the political process, it might be healthy for you just to say, Lord, I'm going to step back for a season and I'm just going to trust you. And I, I, it might be healthier for me to, and it might, I might be able to better love my neighbor if I withdraw a little bit from this process for a season. That could very well be some of you right now in this moment. This podcast, I'm, I'm talking about politics a little bit, but maybe the words of the Lord to you is you need to stop reading the headlines, stop listening to the radio or podcasts, and just focus on loving your family, loving your neighbor. That that There could be seasons like that. And so I, I don't want to say like Christians have to vote. But what we clearly see is that holding political power is a, a sobering responsibility. There's an instruction and wisdom for kings in scripture. Uh, we are called as the people of God to pursue the well-being of our city, city of, of the place where we live. We're called to do good and per, to pursue justice. And we live in a country where we are co-sovereigns, where we have political power, where, where we are invited to participate. And at some level, really, we, we have to participate, generally speaking, in order for the constitution to work. That's significant. So, so I think voting is not something to treat uh, lightly or casually. Um, there may be a season where uh, a believer, for a particular believer, the Lord is calling you to withdraw from the process. But on the whole, I would encourage you to be engaged in the process and to take it seriously. Uh, not to put all your hope in the state, certainly our hope is in Jesus, but to say, hey, I have an opportunity and a responsibility to use this opportunity well for the, for the, the cause of Christ. Let's use it well. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So you asked a question about voting itself, not whether Christians should vote. Uh, in light of the presidential election, could you tackle the pros and cons of voting third party and the idea of voting for the lesser of two evils? Let's talk about voting for the lesser of two evils. The best is the enemy of the good. That's a quotation I believe is commonly attributed to Voltaire, the French satirist, 
but I'm not sure if it actually originated with him. Uh, The best is the enemy of the good. It certainly is imaginable that we could get so caught up in, in wanting the theoretically perfect candidate that we, uh, we miss out on opportunities to further legitimate goods. Uh, imagine this very <laughs> highly simplistic hypothetical, but hopefully it helps make a point. Imagine you're in Germany in the 1930s and you're a German citizen and imagine the, the rise of Hitler, which was actually very complex and lots of elections being involved and compromises and the, the rise of the Nazi party. It was complicated, but imagine it's as simple as voting for Hitler or uh, his opponent and you have the deciding vote, meaning like it is literally up to you whether the, the person who's going to end up with all the power in Germany is Hitler or um, let's think of a an opponent that you might not particularly love. Um, imagine a relatively recent American political figure that you don't like, that you vehemently disagree with on many issues. Uh, th- think of someone like, I don't know, Tom Cotton or Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. Uh, if you like a couple of the people I just listed... Pick one of the people you don't like that I just listed. Uh, Imagine somebody you really don't like, and then now you're here in the 1930s, Germany, and the question is, do you give all the power to Hitler or to one of these other people? You have the deciding vote. And if you choose not to vote, Hitler gets the power. Okay, again, this is highly simplistic. It's a hypothetical. It would never actually happen. But it illustrates this scenario where you might think, man, uh... If I said this American political figure that I disagree with on many things is so not the perfect candidate that I would actually walk away and allow Hitler to gain uh, unfettered control over the Nazi party and the German state in the 1930s, knowing what we do now, that this is going to lead to a horrific war across the globe. It's going to lead to the murder of millions of Jews. Like, I mean, in Proverbs chapter 3, Verse 27, it says, when it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. If you have power, you have the opportunity to vote and to change and and to to give this election to somebody that you you might find many things wrong with, but is not Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Doesn't it seem like it would be just absolutely tragic to miss that opportunity to do good? For millions and millions, like World War II, uh, I mean, I'm not going to blame it all on Hitler, but he was uh, the catalyst. Um, it led to the murder of, I don't know, I shouldn't say the murder. It led to the murder of many, many, many millions. It led to the death of probably approaching a hundred million persons. Like there were tens of millions who died uh, in, in the Soviet Union, throughout Europe, in the Pacific, it was horrific in, into North Africa. And like, it was just, it was terrible. And imagine you had the power to keep Adolf Hitler from taking power in Germany. I'm not saying everything would have turned out rosy, but wow. Like what would loving your neighbor well look like in that moment? And so the, the lesser of two evils argument is, look, there might be the perfect candidate, <laughs> but we don't have perfect candidates, but we do have the power 
to help make decisions and move things in a better direction. And when it's in your power to, to do good, why would you hold that back? Why, why would you say like, well, they're not perfect, so I can't vote for them. And so that, that's the rationale behind the lesser of two evils. By the way, I rarely actually vote for the lesser of two, two evils. We'll get into that more in a moment, but I, I wanted to do it justice. I, th- I think the, the, the phrase has something meaningful behind it. And I, I yeah, I, I, I think if you're in that highly simplistic hypothetical, I probably would vote for, in my opinion, of those candidates. I don't know. I, m- I mentioned several people I really dislike, all of them, and I'm not sure who I would vote for, but I would vote for any of them over Hitler. Okay, so often when, when we talk about voting, we're talking about pragmatic voting versus principled voting. And, and the idea sometimes is, well, the principled vote is only voting for the perfect candidate. And the pragmatic vote is voting for the, well, they're better than the other guy, kind of a lesser of two evils approach. And I, I think I would just say, I think it's important to recognize that any vote could be based on a pragmatic or principled rationale. Um, the principle could be, I vote for the lesser of two evils. Like, that's not simply pragmatic. That is That could be a principled thing. Um, look, in the United States, we have a two-party system. Uh, when elections come about, the principle is I want my vote to try to do the most good it can. And since there's only two parties that can rationally win, I choose the lesser of the two evils. Uh, or maybe I happen once in a while to actually like one of them. But the, the point is that could be the principle upon which you vote. Um, also, your pragmatic vote could be I don't feel like my vote really matters regardless. And so I would rather vote for the person that just makes me feel best about myself or look the best when I tell people who I voted for. Uh, for example, and by the way, I didn't do this for this reason, but it's been very handy several times over the past few years to be able to share it with people. Yeah, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Um, I did vote third party or actually I did a write-in, but like, uh, now I did that for a complicated set of reasons. Um, but one could just be following a pragmatic, Hey, this makes me feel good. makes me look good. And really have no principled reasoning underlying that vote. Like, uh, so, uh, I, I think sometimes thinking that the lesser of two evils is simply a pragmatic vote. I'm like, that could be the principle that you're basing it on. I, I just, I, I don't like the pragmatic versus principled thing. Um, I, I think we should all vote in a principled way, but your principle might be, uh, Look, the I, I want to vote in a way that matters, and there's two candidates that could reasonably win. I'm going to vote for the one that can win. Uh, the the reality is this: statistically speaking, unless you're in a very purple state, meaning uh, a, a swing state, when it comes to the presidential election, your vote will likely not impact the way your state votes. For example, I live in New York State. New York State is going to give its electoral votes, electoral college votes, to the Democratic candidate almost certainly. Whether I vote for the Democrat or the Republican or a third-party candidate or a write-in candidate or, or not at all, it, statistically speaking, that's not going to change the way New York votes. Um, I, I don't know if, if that makes sense. Uh, and so I, at some level... Say you, even the lesser of two evils then at that point. So if you're in New York State, 
say the lesser of two evils is the Democrat, but you voting for the Democrat doesn't actually change anything. Say the lesser of two evils is the Republican. You voting for the Republican is not going to change anything. Uh, and uh, the thing is this, if everybody acts like their vote doesn't decide the election, that could radically alter elections. Um, and maybe the worst of the two candidates would win. And, and so that's why I think people even in a very blue or very red state still tend to vote on the lesser of two evils principle. And I totally get that. And, and I think th that's a good rationale. I'm fine with it personally, because it seems so likely that my vote won't matter. I do feel like I'm actually able to send a helpful message by not voting for either of them. And in a place like New York State, how interesting would it be if over the course of a few elections, all of a sudden 5, 10, 15, 20% of the population, I'm talking blue and red, started voting not for the blue and red candidates, and by that I mean Democratic and Republican, but started voting for third-party candidates and write-in candidates. And it probably wouldn't change the way New York State's voting at all in the short term, but it would be sending a powerful message to the parties that we don't like either of these candidates. And and so for me, part of why I've, I don't think I've, it's been, well, in 2004, 2004 was the last time I voted for president and voted for a uh, main party candidate. Uh, I'm not saying what I'm doing is correct, but I feel like, hey, I want to, I want to, one of the principles I'm working on is I want my vote to do something. And I feel like, I don't feel like any one vote does particularly much, but I think my vote does a lot more in New York State being part of the small percentage of third party and write-in votes that hopefully are sending a message to somebody, I think it does more than if it was just another blue vote or another red vote. Uh, I, I don't think these decisions are simple. Uh, I certainly, I think in my immediate family in 2016, we may have voted for three or four different candidates for president. We're all pretty open and talk about politics. and But like, uh, we're pretty open and chatting and, and we all get along. And so I'm not trying right now to make a case for any particular candidate or a case that you shouldn't vote for one of the major parties or that you should. Uh, I'm just kind of, it, it's, it's complicated. It's tricky. Certainly as Christians, we should value the fact we get to vote and participate in this process and try to make our vote meaningful. Um, what does a meaningful vote look like? I, I think that's tricky to suss out or to clearly identify and we just need to do our best our best in the midst of this process and the state of things now i, I want to close on one thought on voting because i've thought about voting a lot and, and voting frustrates me in many ways i i do feel like i'm generally very dissatisfied with well in this case with joe biden and with donald trump i, I think both of them would make a very inadequate president. I, I don't I don't feel like I particularly respect either of them from a character standpoint or how they carry themselves. I, I disagree with a lot of their policy uh, agendas. Like it's just, and, and so I'm like, how can we move towards something better than being stuck with choices like this? It's part of why I tend to vote third party or write in. One of the things that would be really interesting to me, I, I don't know if we could ever enact it, but it would be amazing if we could, is a voting method called ranked choice voting. Uh, 
And what it is is this, rather than seeing four or five different candidates and getting to vote for one of them, and thus basically saying, well, of these four or five, who are the two that actually have a chance and let me vote for the lesser of the like the two evils. Ranked choice voting, you get to vote for all of them, but you get to vote with like a priority. So you get to say like, this is my favorite candidate, my second favorite candidate, my third favorite candidate, and then maybe your fourth and fifth favorites are the two that are actually likely to win. And then you can make your fourth favorite, the one you prefer of those two, and your fifth or your least, the one you dislike the most of the two. And what that means is this, your vote will still, if the election comes down to those two, your vote will still go for the lesser of those two evils. It'll go for your fourth favorite instead of the fifth favorite. But what if that freed up Americans across this union to start saying like, but here's really my favorite. Firstly, even if number four or five are still the ones who always wins, win, when if, if a bunch of people are saying my, my number one favorite, and by a bunch, I just mean like 10, 15, 20% of the population, that alone would send messages. And you could kind of signal what you really care about and the kind of candidates you really think are most, uh, most well qualified. That would be sending a signal to the American populace as a whole, to party infrastructure, even to the candidates that win might uh, help inform how they act and how they govern. So that ex itself is significant. And, and furthermore, it might turn out some of these third-party candidates and, and even write-in candidates might be able to start pulling off upsets and wins because people feel free to them, free to vote for them without worrying about throwing out their vote or wasting their vote. So I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. Um, even if we still always end up with Democrats and Republicans being elected, it would still allow Americans on the whole to send very strong and compelling messages to people in power. And it also could start upsetting the system and enacting some real change. So I think that's super fun, something to think about and consider. I don't know if it'll ever get enacted because in order for something like that to happen, uh, politicians in Albany or Richmond or whatever state you're in will need to change the way voting happens. And guess what? Democrats and Republicans are both interested in not having ranked choice voting because ranked choice voting means there might be fewer Democrats and Republicans elected. Uh, and so there's actually like a duopoly, kind of like a monopoly, except in this case, it's two institutions, but they both would join together likely to oppose something like ranked choice voting. And turns out those are the two groups in Albany that we need to agree together in order to change this kind of thing. So yeah, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I tend to have a lot of ideas that are unlikely to be implemented. And that is also why I usually vote for somebody for president who is not elected. But uh, <laughs> hey, hopefully some of those ideas, I, I, I realized I wasn't able to give like a, a simple like, hey, here, here's who you should vote for, how you should vote. But I hope some of these, this idea of, of thinking well, thinking biblically and trying to say like, okay, as Christians, how should we vote? Uh, hopefully some of this thinking process is at least food for thought, challenging to you and helpful to you. I'd love to hear any feedback from you, follow-up questions. I think I'm going to call it a day for now. So peace.